Hello, welcome everybody. Thank you for joining us today for the first episode of whatever this is gonna be called. I have with me our special guest, Tony Kiger. Hello, Tony. Hello, thank you so much for having me, Rowan. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Tony is the DM of the actual play podcast, Devils in the Dice, where you've run shows like Leo Lyon's Kingdom of Horrors, uh, a theme park themed horror game using the Call of Cthulhu system. Stratford High, an angsty dark academia game of Monster Hearts, an upcoming game of D&D 5e that you'll be premiering in the new year. Yes, yes. Uh, we run, uh, typically we try to keep shorter campaigns where we tell a bunch of different stories uh, that all take place in the same universe through a bunch of various different systems. Oh, there's nothing I love more than a TTRPG cinematic universe. Yeah, we uh, the big underlying uh, message in our games is is the use of our universe's version of the devil called the gentleman in the striped suit, who is less of the traditional version of the devil and more of a whimsical storyteller. A trickster, if you will. Mm, a trickster fay, basically. So uh, the first question I have for you today, an easy one. Uh, mm. Why do you run games? So I started my journey in TTRPGs through college. Um, I went to school for acting. And so... It reflects I, on the yeah, way that you it, DM. Thank you. So I have a, a heavy acting and improv background in, in terms of um, where I'm coming from. I didn't come from the, the like, uh, reader high fantasy kind of background mine is more in um just kind of like theatrical elements a little bit of film a little bit of tv things like that but i started running games mainly because it was during the pandemic and i couldn't tell stories through theater or uh, other means that i had been doing for a while and so i started running games and i my first game that I ever run was a Monster Hearts one-shot. An interesting was... system to start with. How did, yeah. that, how did that happen? Uh, so I had always loved the Monster Hearts system. It was the, the first system outside of D&D, because that was the first game that I got into, where I really like sunk my teeth into it. Somebody had recommended that I watch the Critical Role Monster Hearts one-shot that mm -hmm. they did. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is really cool, but this system, let me hear more about this <laughs> system. Um, and so I started reading the, the handbook and fell in love with it. We played that first system, and then that led to the rabbit hole of all of the homebrew that we created for the system of just, like, various other skins that you can play, mainly because I wanted to be a mermaid, and there wasn't <laughs> the option to be a mermaid. Um, and, yeah, that kind of just led to roughly where we are now with the show. Amazing. I love what about the system was really enticing to you over 5e? Yeah. So when I was thinking about the Monster Hearts system, it really lent itself more to the kinds of stories that I like to tell compared to D&D &D because, you know, you can adapt D&D &D to a lot of different things. The upcoming D&D &D series that we're doing is uh, Wild West themed. Um, so that's that's kind of the big thing that we're going with. But in terms of like stories that I really love telling, I love telling stories that have a bit of lightheartedness to them or that are um, very much in the horror genre and monster hearts. Things that work really, well together. You yeah, know? they really work well. Horror, lightheartedness, horror and comedy, you know, they're basically siblings. And that's kind of where 
my my brain usually goes to with telling stories mm-hmm. is horror comedy mixing the two and and monster hearts really i think lends itself well to that it's also a lot easier to get into because you know it's a 2d6 system Mm -hmm. the character sheet is easier to kind of get into strings are like the most complex thing about the system but once you kind of get into it 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 starts to make a little bit more sense yeah i think monster hearts just really was a better platform for my type of storytelling that makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, I definitely understand. I'm actually going to be starting to run a game tomorrow with a group of all new players. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm not going to teach them 5e. Like, I'm not going to spend seven or eight hours just making characters, explaining how to roll die. Like, I was like, no, 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 no. Let's find a different system. Mm-hmm. The first D&D campaign that I was ever a part of, it took like three and a half hours to make my character. And my character just ended up being the like edgelord paladin that everybody <laughs> makes. Yep, and that's so how it I was goes. like... It was literally like Edgelord Paladin, and I stopped enjoying playing that character, so I made Horny Bard Tiefling, and I was like, classic, there's, there's classic the second. first <laughs> classic too. So, I wanted to ask, what do you believe is the role of the Game Master? I think that the role of the Game Master is meant to help the players navigate a story that they want to tell within a world that you have set up. That's really the way that I I look at it. I I think that the DM role is extremely collaborative. When I am running a game, I take a lot of time in the session zero of planning and setting up characters and making my players really feel integrated into the world so that way they feel a reason to go out and do the things that they're going to do. I am notorious for not prepping anything. That's impressive. And and so thank you. Um, And so I really do lean on my players to kind of give me that roadmap because I know that I work best when I am reacting to what they're doing in the moment. And so... Hence the improv background. Yes. Uh, And so I'm like... I know no amount of planning that I can do for a game is going to actually lend itself well to how I run a game. And so I, when I think of the role of the GM, it's a, a player in the game that just plays multiple characters that don't do as cool of stuff. <laughs> they set up the cool stuff. It's yeah. one of the layups for the yeah. cool stuff. We are the straight man to the, the, to the players. Absolutely. That actually, that was a perfect segue into the next question that I had about like what your prep looks like in the two different scenarios, because for a home game, I think that's really easy, very low stakes to not prep Mm -hmm. at all. And to just be like, all right, well, whatever the players are going to do, we're going to go with it. But when you're setting up a consumable narrative, a piece of art, that's a much higher stakes situation that you're in. Yes. Yes. The big difference that I find in my own prep between a home game and something that I'm doing for the show in a home game, my session zeros are usually just like, Hey, what's your character going to be? Okay, cool. This is the general concept I have for the game. Let's just have fun. See what happens with the, with the show. I really look to the players and I go, what is what is your character's big thing that they want to do? I also encourage my characters to think of their relationship to each other coming into the game. So for example, we are actually in the middle of recording our Halloween special for this year, which is a kids on bikes game 
Oh, um, love kids on bikes. It is. I'm having so much. It's my first time DMing it, so I'm very excited. The best way I could describe that game is if Blue's Clues and Saw had a baby. Um, in that it's like uh. a demented kids TV show, like like Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka kind of vibe. And the way we kind of came about that was the players all were part of a subreddit together and grew really close because they had this one thing in common that brought them together and now they're getting to meet their childhood hero who ends up who ends up being a a demonic creature but you know oh yeah so i I really yeah absolutely everyone go check that out when this happens i was i was gonna say also with the session zeros do you plan on having the session zero because for a couple of other your seasons you do have the session zeros Mm -hmm. uh for everyone to listen to what are you gonna are you gonna do that again for this um i we're not doing it again for this season uh but for the D &D campaign we are i I am planning on doing that um it really does depend on how i want to look at the season from a standpoint for the audience so for the season that you were just mentioning beast of the bog i really wanted that to be an educational series teaching the audience how the basics of the call of cthulhu system works because call of cthulhu can be a very daunting system to learn because it's there's so much math and numbers involved and so many minor mechanics that you can really lose yourself in and so what I really wanted to do with that series is just bring the audience in on a journey for a bunch of people that are playing Call of Cthulhu. You can learn how to build the character. You learn how the basics of the system works. Just a really simple and easy narrative for them to follow with that one. But I, I really enjoyed having the Session Zero being that transparent. So we are I am planning on doing that for the D&D series and a couple of other series that we'll be doing in the future that are still kind of in the pre-production stage that is something that i was really proud of with that series was having that session zero be available to the audience yeah and i think it's really essential especially now in this age where ttrpgs and actual plays are starting to like proliferate and get so much more popular mm-hmm. but D 5e still is the one that kind of everyone goes to first when playing these other systems giving people an access point so when they're listening to the narrative, they're not distracted by like, wait, why is someone rolling these dice? Why is someone doing this now? I think that's a very smart move on your hand. Yeah. One of the big things that I really wanted to do with this show, and part of the reason that I really am proud of what we do with the show, is that I come from an environment where TTRPGs just aren't as accessible to various different types of people in the community. Like, I grew up in the Midwest, very rural conservative kind of area so D was kind of something that i was like oh that's that's way out there and the then i got panic yeah, of it all exactly i i got into it and it was nothing like i had expected it was it was basically just an acting exercise that i was able to do and i started to look around and i was like well there's i mean there's so many different kinds of stories that you could tell for so many different people and my show really i want it to be as accessible as possible not just for learning different systems but also in terms of audience retention because we do shorter series because you know i i love critical role and everything that it's done for the community but it is such a daunting task to get into the crit role fandom if you haven't been there for a while and so i was like 
you know, let's have a bunch of different series with a bunch of different kinds of people telling a bunch of different kinds of stories that can really appeal to a lot of different people in the audience. You know, I, I really try to, for the show and for my home games, I really try to pride myself on having as diverse of a table as possible. Most of our narratives are queer narratives. Uh, mo a good chunk of the cast and people involved in the show are BIPOC. And so we really try to make sure that it is as accessible of a show as possible so that way we can make TTRPGs more accessible for a wider audience. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think what you were just talking about, how like, the history of TTRPGs are mm -hmm. very, like, cis white man dominated. And, like, mm -hmm. the fact that us two queer people are, like, as prominent in these games as we are is a testament not to, like, these games that are played, but people who come before us who, like, showed us that, oh, we can do these. Um, and I think yeah. that's really amazing. Yeah, shout out to the straight white guys that introduced me to D&D. I really appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much. I got real lucky the person who introduced me to D, not a straight white guy. Mm. Really, ooh, so lucky there. Mm. So you were talking a lot about how it's reactive in session when you're playing. Mm-hmm. What does that look like in differentiation between being in a home game and being in a recorded session? Does the, the reactivity change? Are you in a different headspace? Do you like have to navigate different things like technical aspects? What, what is your head at as you're DMing in a game? So when I'm DMing in a, in a game for the show, I typically find that the reactivity that I'm doing is much more consequential to the narrative in my home games, it's usually like, oh, somebody did a really cool thing. I'm just going to kind of riff off of that. But like, for example, in, in our series Stratford High, one of the more beloved NPCs in the game by the players was made up on the spot because they were in rehearsal for Beauty and the Beast. And there was a very tense moment between one of the players and their romantic interests. And I was like... Well, the person that's playing Cogsworth, this little underclassman, is also there. Um, so one of the other players was like, I'm going to steal them away. And I was like, yeah, you just steal this person away. Their name's like Tom or something. And he had a really high voice like this. And he was talking and all of that. And he became one of the most beloved characters for the party. He Everybody found out that he was like the most popular underclassman. He was in a relationship with this other underclassman named Mike. They just became like a thing in, in the game. And so it's... It's really funny because going into doing the show, I would think that it would be the opposite of like my reactivity wouldn't have as much weight as what's going on. But it really does kind of change because I I lean more on my players to help navigate the story for the stream. I think that it's really important that like I, I of course I have my big bullet points of like this is where the big story overall is going to go and how it'll fit into the larger narrative of the universe of the show. But like a lot of things with with the series is just the players telling me that their character is interested in this thing. And so I'm going to go and explore that. Or for a lot of our horror series, it is uh, my character is afraid of this. And so that's going to get incorporated in the game. There's a long running joke amongst a bunch of the people that have been on my show that I am the most sadistic GM that they've been involved in because I will use the, what they tell me against them. Um, 
That's just active listening. I don't exactly. Know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For example, part of the Halloween special that's coming up, I asked all of my players to write down fears because, of course, in Kids on Bikes, you want to overcome your fears and you'll gain benefits. I'm coming up with a bunch of different home rule benefits that uh, happen. But I was like, just so you know, I'm going to use these fears against you. And there is a room designed in the show specifically for them to face their fears. And so, you know, there's claustrophobia, there's the fear of reflections, there's the fear of clowns, there's the fear of heights, you know, it's, there's going to be a lot of fears that they have to overcome. But Which, and like you were yeah. saying, Kids on Bikes is the perfect system to explore that. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I think Kids on Bikes is also such a wonderful system because it inherently leads to more collaboration and more storytelling. And I'm somebody that also loves my games to be roleplay heavy. I love kind of just taking a backseat, letting the players interact with each other, interact with the world. So that way, you know, they feel like it's their story and I'm helping them guide them to it. And that's really the other big thing between the, the show and home game because a lot of times with home games, it's like, I have made this thing. I have come up with this concept. Who wants to play in it? Whereas like for the show, I'm like, so here's the general outline. What do you want to talk about? That's so fascinating. Taking more of a backseat role in the thing that is going to be consumed by others mm -hmm. rather than having quote unquote more control of it over in a home game. That feels almost counterintuitive, but makes a lot of sense in a collaborative art form, especially from like an improv or theater background. Yeah, especially for the more recent games um, that we're doing, the D&D &D game, the Halloween special, I've really started to take a lot of influence in my own GM style from that improv background. There's an amazing podcast that I can't recommend enough called Artists on Artists on Artists on Artists, where it's an improv comedy podcast where it is a group of comedians who have a specific type of person in entertainment industry. And they each play a character that is that kind of person in the entertainment mm -hmm. industry. And it is an hour-long mono scene, basically, of a round table of artists. And That's I, so great. Yeah, I can't recommend it enough. It really has influenced a lot of my G own GM style of like, I'm going to take a backseat. I'm going to let the characters do what the characters need to do. From your improv background, was it more long form or short form or a combination thereof? So, uh, so we did, uh, most of my improv background comes from college. So it was a lot of short form games that were more accessible to a college audience. Since moving to where I am now, I've really gotten back into improv and it's been a lot more long form stuff and so there's been a lot of really great mixing of the two that i'm able to just kind of combine things off of when it comes to inspiration and things like that i really just try to bounce off of whatever is going on in my head at the time and so it'll it'll lead to a lot of weird moments and concepts that i'm just like all right let's throw this out there <laughs> the the reason i ask about the improv background is because in relation to maintaining a narrative that is very essential in terms of like narrative improv you get to like play around with it and a callback is very essential to making a joke land mm -hmm. when it comes to telling a story through tabletop games you need to maintain like the verisimilitude of the world so with your low prep style how does that work out in like note taking both in a game at home and in a game for the show a lot of times it will be i really rely on active listening and having my players really take narrative control in a lot of moments. For example, we just recorded an episode of the Halloween special where they were all gearing up to 
to travel to the house. And I was like, what does the travel preparations look like for you? Walk me through what you're doing to get ready to meet your heroes. And just allowing my players to really take control of the narrative, really decide what their characters are doing. Meanwhile, I am sitting back and taking note of what they're saying so that way the world is sort of built around it. The way I look at it is I try to give them a sandbox that they can build things in and then I'm taking pictures of what they're building <laughs> so that way I can destroy them. You gotta step on a sandcastle every mm. once in a while. Mm. Do you listen back to your recordings prior to each session or what? Do you, what is your process like for that? Yeah, so I am also the editor for the show. Um, so I, I listen back to everything before the recording sessions and before the episode goes out. So that way I'm able to kind of get an idea of what's going on. I'm also taking notes of the, the basic ideas of what's going on or if there's a name or a location that's being set out by the players or myself at the time. I'm just like, okay, cool. That's going in the notes for next time. And, you know, a lot of times that, that low prep really does come back to bite me. And it has multiple times on stream where I have just completely forgotten a character or a moment that had happened. It's even happened to where like a moment will have happened five minutes ago and I forgot about it. And so it's, it's a high risk, high reward kind of scenario, but I have enough trust in myself and enough trust in the players that I surround myself with to where I, we all know that things are going to be called back. Things are going to be, taken care of documented and things like that and so it is it is really a collaborative process when it comes to like making sure that things are being remembered for the next time i i love that i think that makes a lot of sense i have a pretty big memory issue myself as well so i definitely understand that i try to take like meticulous notes but mm -hmm. oh god can i not make sense of them if i'm like writing them down by hand or just got like a sparse word here and there that i'm like ah oh, right of course yeah. cornucopia obviously <laughs> Yeah, exactly. There was a, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, it was a, uh, a home game of mine where just like on a whim, I said that a character was really into Uncrustables. And then that led to like Uncrustables being a big thing throughout the game of like, <laughs> they became a currency of like, you're going to do this thing for me and I'm going to pay you in three Uncrustables. Um, <laughs> I, honestly, that's a worthy bargain. It is. You know, doing some internet sleuthing for three Uncrustables I don't think is a fair, or is an unfair deal. No, absolutely. I'd do that 100%. Yeah, exactly. Kind of rounding this out here, I want to ask about one thing that I think you really excel in, in the way that you run a game, is using character conflict and tension at the table to kind of propel a narrative forward. Because, especially like with an improv background, Conflict is like the driving engine of a scene, but the conflict c can't die out. The conflict can't like drive you into the ground. And I think you do something very masterful in where you either insert a character or insert a story beat into that moment of conflict to turn it around. Mm -hmm. What do you, what is your like internal process for seeing that and differentiating between like, I need to let this conflict play out or I need to step in? Yeah, I think a lot of times it really comes down to the kind of story that I'm wanting to tell, especially in horror games. I've realized that you really need the characters to take a moment to breathe and process what's going on with each other. And when that conflict arises, 
you know, think about it from a perspective of a horror movie. If characters are sitting around yelling for five minutes, the killer's gonna find them <laughs> and is going to kill at least one of them. I The way I look at it is I kind of let the environment really dictate when things get played out and when things don't. If a couple of characters are just like talking in their dorm room and strategizing a plan to find out who's been messing with them, then I'll let them play out. And when I feel that there's a bit of a lull in the conversation, then I'm like, all right, let's bring in a character. Let's bring in a text message. Whereas in a horror game, it's very much like, I can tell when something's at a super high amount of tension. So I'm going to let it dip a little bit so we can slowly rise back up to that amount of tension. And a lot of times that will be through a sound or a smell or just a quick visual. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, especially with last year's Leo Lyons campaign, is there was a big moment of conflict where they were trying to figure out where they were going to go first to explore in the park. And I was like, well, now here comes the first animatronic, a giant fire-breathing robotic bear who is in a chef's costume. And I clued them in that something was up because they had just turned the power back on to the the entire theme park. But the first thing that they noticed, the smell of a grill turning on. And then that smell leads them to instinctively look in the direction of the diner because that's the only place where a grill would be. And in the doorway is the bear. And so there's the visual aspect. I can feel them starting to get tense. And so then the bear starts laughing. And then that leads into the big scare of the bear breathing fire and kicking open the door. And so it's, it's, yeah, it's really about just like building up that tension. And I think that especially when it comes to player conflict and interactions within the players, if they are building up the conflict naturally, then that can just allow me to skip a few steps to where the players are, are yelling, they're screaming, they're trying to comprehend what happened last time. And then all of a sudden the lights flicker and a clown is dancing in front of them. Horrifying. Thank you. Thank you. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. This has been a really great conversation. I yeah, really, really enjoyed it. Uh, my my final question that I'm going to leave you with for this yes. is going to be any advice that you have for either someone who has not DM'd trying to start DMing or someone who has DM'd who is trying to move into streaming or doing an actual play. What yeah. would your advice to them be? My advice would be to... Trust yourself, trust the people around you, and know that the collective goal should be to tell a good story, to be in the moment, to have a good time. Never stress about, am I coming up with a good narrative? Is this going to make sense from a logical standpoint? The thing that has been successful for, for my show is that the number one priority is still player enjoyment. If you're going to be a DM in a regular game or if you're going to move to streaming, what should matter is that the people that are at your table are having fun because then you're going to have fun and the audience is going to have fun because they are seeing the joy and the excitement and all of the emotions that are going into it from a player's perspective because they are so invested because you're prioritizing their their happiness and their excitement. I think, especially for those that are looking to get into streaming, the audience 
I never really think about the audience when I'm coming up with a game. When I think of a game, it's about the players, and it just so happens that they all fall into a nice narrative for this big overall theme of the universe. And like we have the failsafe of, oh, the devil shows up. And so <laughs> that's, that's always a nice failsafe. But really prioritize player enjoyment, trust in yourself, trust in the people around you, and, and just know that a story, a good story will be told no matter. I think that's really important to prioritize joy, to prioritize fun, because, like, we're playing games. We're telling stories, making art, but we're playing games. We're supposed to be having a good time. Otherwise, what's the point? Exactly. We're sitting around playing make-believe. Like, this is is supposed to be an enjoyable experience. Thank you so much, Tony, for being here. Thank Thank you. This was truly such a lovely conversation. I think an amazing start to this series. Thank Uh, you so much. Where can people find you? Where can people find what the actual plays you're going to be doing? Yeah, you can find me um, all socials at Tony the Kiker. It's Tony the Tiger, but with a K. I am the host and game master for Devils in the Dice. You can find us anywhere that you get your podcasts at Devils in the Dice. We are about to launch our Halloween special, Johnny's House, a kids on bikes horror story on September 12th. And then our D&D campaign, Silver Dune, will be premiering early 2024. You can also catch me coming soon as a cast member on the actual play Half-Blood Happy Hour, uh, where uh, wherever you find podcasts, they're a wonderful actual play of a D&D universe set in the Percy Jackson world. Um, so you'll get to meet my, uh, my fun little uh, Irish demigod, Mercer, who... Uh, goes to school in a universe that I have created that is now being used against me. That's only fitting, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, that's perfect. that's where you can find me. Amazing. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.